So before Christianity was called Christianity, do you know what it was called? Anyone? The way, yes. Bible scholars, I love it. Yeah, if you read through the book of Acts, which is that history book of the early church, you'll see that Christianity was first known as the way. In uh, Acts chapter 9, we see Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And he was looking for anyone who belonged to the way so that he might bring them to prison. He was looking for, uh, he was going to, to Jerusalem looking for um, letters of authority so that the Sanhedrin, the, the high ups would give him the authority and the power that if he found someone belonging to the way that he could arrest them, bring them to prison. And if you fast forward through the book of Acts, you, we know that Paul uh, became converted. He became a follower of the way. And during his trial before Felix, he admits to him, he says, listen, I, I myself used to be an opponent of the way, but now I'm a follower of the way. My, my life has been, become completely changed. And I think this started to develop because in John 14, 6, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And, it, and, and thinking about the way, this pathway creates a vivid illustration for the Christian life. See, a pathway is where you go from one place to another. It's not really a, a, merely a map to be studied. You can't get somewhere just by studying the way. You have to actually journey along that way. You have to walk along that way. The path must be traveled. It's not just something that you can take intellectually. It will never get you there. In other words, Christianity is not simply a set of theoretical beliefs. It's not merely doctrine. Our beliefs have to become our very thoughts. They have to influence our, our feelings and they have to become our very behaviors. So here's how Christianity works. This is Christianity 101. Jesus came and he said, I am the way. Unlike all other religions that point to the way, right? All of them said, look, here's the way. And I'm, I'm a guide that will help you along that way. Jesus said, no, 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 there is no guide. I am the way. He didn't point to the way. He didn't come as a guide. He came to be the way to get us back to God. See, we couldn't find our way. So Jesus had to come to be the way. And Jesus, throughout his life, charts perfectly through his life and his death and his resurrection, the, the perfect human life. And then he calls us to follow him. And see, it's his grace that enables us to want to follow him. So if you have a desire in your life to follow Christ, that in and of itself is a gift from God. It's his grace that enables us to actually follow him. So when you find that you are putting sin to death and you're cultivating a life of godliness, that is a gift from him. And it's his grace when we go off course, as we often do, to get us back on that path. That's also his grace. That's also a gift. All of it from start to finish, is by His grace. And here's what makes Christianity so unique. We don't get access to Jesus and His grace at the end after we've found our way. See, a lot of religions say, look, if you will do these things, live this way, and not live that way, when you get to the end and you've proven yourself, 
You get rewarded with whatever that reward is. Some kind of eternal life, some kind of bliss, right? That's not how Christianity works. That's works-based religion. Getting rewarded for your accomplishments and making it to the end is not Christianity. That's not the way. Jesus is the way. He already accomplished the journey. That's what he's saying. I am the way because I've already done it. You don't need to do it because I've done it. And that frees us to walk with him on that journey of faith. So it's even better. Not only does Jesus live the way, he comes back and says, I'll walk with you along your journey of faith. And it's on this journey that we're changed as these beliefs become realized and put into practice into our daily lives. Now, why did I give you a crash course on how Christianity works? It's because we are in a series right now in Romans chapter 12 called Transformed. And beginning in chapter 12, Paul starts to lay out how all of that gospel doctrine in chapters 1 through 11 starts to make its way into our daily lives, into the everyday stuff of life. For 11 chapters, Paul outlines gospel doctrine, and it's incredibly important that we get that gospel doctrine. It's chapter after chapter of Christian belief. And then he spends the rest of his letter, chapters 12 through 16, laying out how gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. How we believe, what we believe, needs to work its way into how we live. Our beliefs need to change into uh, new behaviors, new desires, transformed character. And as we think on those doctrines, as we put those doctrines into practice, our very lives become changed. It's that sanctification process. And so we looked at Romans 12, 1 through 2, which serves as an introduction to the whole of chapter 12 and really all of chapter 12 through 16. And Paul said, when we consider all that God has done for us in Christ, the only logical, the only reasonable response is to give all we have, our very lives, to him. And the short way we said that was all of you given to all of God. That's Romans 12, 1 through 2. All of you given to all of God. And then in Romans 12, 3 through 8, Paul looks at how Christians live together as the body of Christ in unity, diversity, and connectivity. The body of Christ works best when we use the diversity of our gifts and functions to work together for the purposes of Christ and to serve one another. And then last week we started a new section, verses 9 through 21, and Paul starts to open up the conversation more broadly into the, the various facets of our life. And in verses 9 through 11, Pastor Kevin looked at the nature, direction, and intensity of Christian love. We talked about how Christian love, by definition, cannot be hypocritical. It needs to be genuine. Christian love is outward focused, and it's never lacking in fervor. And now we come to verses 12 through 14, and Paul's looking at another aspect of life. How do we live under pressure? How does our faith speak into hard days of life when it feels like you're being pressed in from every single direction? 
I think about those scenes in those movies where uh, the heroes have found themselves in a new part of uh, the maze or, the, or, or, or they're on the run and what happens? The walls start closing in, right? You see this in a lot of different uh, movies, right? They're getting pressed in from every direction. How do you live under pressure? Now Paul's going to give us three practical answers to that question. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline for this morning. First, in verse 12, Paul is going to say, if we're going to live under pressure, we need to have hopeful endurance through dependent prayer. That's verse 12. Hopeful endurance through dependent prayer. Second, in verse 13, Paul says we need a proactive generosity to those in need. A proactive generosity to those in need. And then in verse 14, Paul says we need a counter cultural grace towards our enemies. If we're going to live under pressure, we need to develop a counter-cultural grace towards our enemies. Now let's start together in verse 12 to see our first point, a hopeful dependence through, a hopeful endurance through dependent prayer. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Now it can be tempting when we read those first uh, th- this first verse, and we see these three commands to think that they're unrelated. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. But Paul is not random. He's not scatterbrained. He is actually very logical. He follows an order, and these phrases are not unrelated. At the center of this triad is the word tribulation. This word comes from the Greek word um, phlebo, which means to squeeze or press or to crush. Think of um, squeezing like a citrus to get the juice. So when you want some fresh squeezed orange juice, you crush it and you squeeze it. That's what this verb means. Or think about crushing grain in a mill so that you get the kernel that, you can, be, that can be further milled into flour, right? In the early usage of this word, it was very quickly used figuratively because we all know that experience of feeling life under pressure. And so as they're squeezing things, they're like, hey, that, that sounds a lot like how my life feels right now. My life is under that kind of pressure in squeezing. Paul actually uses it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. It's that word afflicted there. Affliction, tribulation, to be pressed in. That's what tribulation is in this verse. It's being squeezed and pressed and crushed. And that's how tribulation and affliction feels, doesn't it? Feels like pressure is coming from all sides. Like when it rains, it pours. It's not just one thing, it's multiple things. So every facet in front of your life feels like there's stress points. We often describe these moments like being stuck between a rock and a hard place or being squeezed from both sides. And it's in the midst of that pressure, Paul says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now, this is where grammar is really important. See, the command to rejoice or to have joy is grounded in hope. In other words, Paul is saying rejoice through hope. That hope is the cause of our joy. I think it's difficult for us to believe that uh, that hope could be the cause of joy. 
Because I think we've reduced the word hope into wishful thinking. That's the way it's generally used in our culture today. So when we talk about having hope, it's positive thinking. Just be positive, think positive. That'll change your circumstances if you would just think more positively. Wishful thinking. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope is not empty, wishful thinking. Christian hope is not some kind of opiate that gives us a false sense of assurance. A distinctly Christian hope is a powerful thing because it's based on the truth of God's promises. So it's not wishful thinking. It's reality. It's what is actually true in the world. It's grounded in the foundation of his word. And God's word tells us that not one word of God will ever fail. Not one word. See, the believer has something real to actually hope for. Something to look forward to. In the midst of tribulation and trials, we know that they're not purposeless. Paul says earlier in Romans 5, 3 through 5. This is one of those verses that you need to memorize, to have deep down in your soul when you're going through trials and you think, this is meaningless, it's purposeless, it doesn't do anything. Here's God's word telling you, no, no, it actually does something. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. You hear that same reality there of rejoicing? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you hear that? That's all purpose. Those, that's telling you that suffering, afflictions, trials do something in your life. It produces something. Who wouldn't want to be people of endurance? To be people of character? To be people grounded in a distinctly Christian hope? You want those things in your life? Paul's saying those things are, are wrought in your life through affliction and suffering. See, our affliction produces in us a change that can't be had any other way. That's how those things are formed in your life. You want to grow uh, strength in your muscles? Well, you have to work out. It's inconvenient. It's costly. It takes time. You often have to get up early. But we don't want to put in the sacrifice and the commitment and time that it takes to get it. Well, if you don't want to go through that, you will not get the kind of strength and muscles that come with it, right? You can't just get up one day and go run a marathon. As much as you might think you're awesome and great and wishful, like, I, I, I think I'm going to go do this today. You're not going to be able to do it. Your body is going to crash. It will fail. The only way to get there is through long Hard workouts through commitment and time. You know how long it takes to run a marathon? It's not 10 minutes. It takes a lot of time. And on the day of the race, it's, it's, it's like a, 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 it's a marker of all this other time you've put in. Right? It can't be had any other way. 
Do you want character? Do you want endurance? Do you want genuine Christian hope? It comes through suffering and affliction, and it can't be had any other way. But not only is our affliction full of purpose in the here and now, it's also temporary. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Remember earlier he said we were pressed and crushed but not destroyed. Now Paul's picking back up that argument. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, like your suffering and your circumstances, are transient, meaning they pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal, like this weight of glory. Now in the moment of pain, nothing seems temporary. I get that. But let these words inform your mind and give you perspective that can hopefully alleviate some of the pain while you're going through it. See, it's important that your heart and soul is so filled up with the truth of God so that when you're in those circumstances, that's what's pouring out of you. It's very, very difficult in the midst of pain to receive new information, new truth, new perspective. You've got to have that stuff stored up now so that when you're going through it, that's what's pouring out of your soul. And here's that truth. Your afflictions will not last forever. They won't. Paul says they're momentary. Your afflictions aren't wasted. They have purpose. Your afflictions are not meaningless. That's truth. They are light and momentary compared with eternity. And they are, Paul says, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, I'm not even sure what Paul means by that in totality. I just know that whatever it is, I'd like to have that. So many times when, when Paul and other New Testament writers are speaking about eternal things like that, we're just grasping to put some temporary um, human words around something that is beyond us. And we're supposed to be left with this feeling of whatever an eternal weight of glory is, I want that. That's, that's something that, that I should want in my life. And Paul says, whatever that is, comparatively makes whatever. And I know I don't know all of your stories. And I know I don't know all of the details of the things you're going through right now. But I don't have to know the details. Because Paul says, whatever it is, compared to this eternal weight of glory, it is light and momentary. Friends, hope strengthens us in the midst of adversity because we are confident that God will make good on his word. We're confident in his redemptive plan. And we know that God will bring relief from our troubles as he wills. And ultimately, he's going to ensure that even these things work good in your life. And they're going to, God is faithful to see your transformation even when you're willing to give up on it. God is going, I love you more than that. And so I'm going to see your transformation through from beginning to end, regardless of if you want to go through this current suffering. And, 
And one day, God promises that we will be freed from all of those chains. It doesn't last forever. John Murray says it like this. The believer must never have his horizon bounded. That means constrained. Bounded by what is seen in temporal. Hope is the cause or ground of joy. And there is no comfort in sorrow except as it is illumined by hope. What is John Murray saying? He's saying you can't, when you're going through suffering, just see what's right in front of you. You can't have your horizon bound or blocked or shaded in by the current circumstances. You've got to let the truth of God's word open them up to see the full horizon. To see what God really has in store for you. And that will start to bubble up the kind of hope that enables us to make it through suffering. So Paul says we rejoice in hope and we're patient in tribulation. That word for patient is a compound Greek word. It's the preposition hupa, which means under, connected to the word meno, which means to remain or abide. So if you remember John 15 when Jesus says, remain in me, that's that word meno, abide, stay. So if you take them together, it means to endure, abide under pressure. So when it feels like pressure is pushing down on you, Paul's saying, endure, hold out, stand your ground. And notice Paul doesn't say be patient if tribulation comes. He just assumes what he says elsewhere, be patient in tribulation. Why? Because it's coming. You're either recovering from some in it right now or it's on its way. That's the life. As it relates to suffering and affliction in your life, you've either just come out of a season, you're in a season, or that season is coming. And Paul says, be patient. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So many times as a pastor, I get emails from people who are going through suffering and affliction, and they're shocked by it, like surprised by it. Friends, let's get this down right now. Do not be surprised when suffering comes in your life. Expect it. Expect it. John 16, These are words of Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. You notice he didn't say you might. It could happen if you don't do things right. No, no. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Affliction, pressure, tribulation, suffering, persecution, trials. Pick your favorite word. They're all the same. All of these should be expected because nobody escapes the shrapnel of a broken world. You know what shrapnel is, right? When an explosion goes off, it sends out shards in every kind of direction, right? And you may not be there at the blast point, but what happens? It just, it goes out. And you and I live in a world where a bomb has gone off called sin. And none of us escape the shrapnel of a broken world. So Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Paul's saying, 
be devoted to prayer, persist in prayer, be dependent on prayer. Now, I don't know if your experience is like mine, but prayer does not happen naturally. That's not usually the first thing. Why? Because in our pride, we often seek to solve problems in our own strength or in our weakness, we simply buckle under the pressure. And what Paul is saying, don't err on the side of pride where you think you've got it all figured out and you can do it on your own. Or don't succumb to the weight of it either. You have something else to do. And that is prayer. Prayer is the conscious and deliberate course of action that Paul is calling us to. We must set our minds and hearts to pray or we never will. It has to be an active decision of the will. Now, what is prayer? Prayer is God's ordained means to open up the supply of his sufficient grace for every affliction that comes upon us. In other words, God has all of this unending supply of sustaining grace. And prayer is God's preordained means that you and I would have access to that supply. Right? You know how faucets work? You know, there's constant pressure. Like water is just ready to come out. You notice when you turn on the faucet, it's, it's just right there. It's not traveling from like the, 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 the water treatment facility to make its way to your house. It is right there. You just have to turn on the valve, right? Prayer is like making that decision to turn on the valve to say, Lord, soak me in that sustaining, sufficient grace. That's how God has designed it, that we would be dependent, connected, devoted to prayer. This is how we tap into that supply. And that's what gives us the endurance we need to withstand the afflictions of a broken world. The guy who's writing this, Paul's the same guy who said that the Lord had, had, he, he had this, uh, this thorn of affliction. And he begged God, pleaded with God... To take the thorn of affliction away. Now you would think of anybody. Think about all the work Paul did for the gospel. Wrote all, like basically wrote most of the New Testament. Like did church planting before there was church planting. Like we wouldn't have this church without the legacy of church planting that Paul started. And you would think if anybody was on God's good list, it was Paul. Right? And Paul's like, listen, I, I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by snakes. Like it gets real for me. Right? And if you think if anybody would get just one prayer answered from God, it would be Paul. Right? Paul prayed, take this thorn of affliction away. And here's what God said in response. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What was Paul saying? What was God saying to Paul? Paul, keep dependent on prayer and you will receive my sufficient grace. God was saying, Paul, I have something to work in you. Character, endurance, hope. That only comes through this thorn of affliction. And so while I can't in my goodness and foresight take it away, because there's still more work to be done, what I can do is give you sufficient grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, 
tribulation, hope, and prayer always go together in the New Testament. And it is a very good way of testing ourselves to ask whether they always go together in our experience. And they should. Friends, what a good word from the good doctor. Think about how interconnected this trilogy is. Think about how dismal and dark tribulation would be without hope. If we had no hope, how dark would it get in our lives? How defeated would we be in times of affliction without the sustaining grace of God through prayer? So when the pressure of life presses in, do you set your mind on the things above? Is your horizon bound by the temporary and the momentary? Or do you look beyond to the hope we have in Christ Jesus? Or do you try to go at it alone, being negligent to prayer? Even though the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, opening up his supply of grace as we pray. Is your tribulation accompanied by hope and prayer? Hope and prayer. How do you live under pressure? Paul says you need a hopeful endurance through dependent prayer. Second thing, verse 13, Paul says this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Our second point, what you need in your life is a proactive generosity to those in need. In this verse, Paul's telling us to contribute to the needs of the saints. This Greek word for contribution or contributing is koinonio, which sounds like koinonia. You've probably heard that word before. It means to fellowship or communion. In its verbal form, it means to share. Now, from our earliest days, we're not real good at sharing, are we? Right? Kids don't naturally just share. Their first words are often mine. Right? I know I have five of them. It's like mom, dad, mine. First three words. But here this word means to participate in something to such a degree that you have a vested interest. It's not merely just sharing, but it's, it's sharing in a way where you see their needs as your needs. Because you're vested. You're invested in it. In other words, you're so invested into community, this koinonia, with other believers that their needs become your needs. In the same way you would take care of your needs, if you saw a need in your own life and you'd say, we've got to fix that, we've got to get that taken care of, you see a need in their life and go, well, it's not just their need, it's my need. Because I am invested in this relationship. This naturally flows from what Paul was talking about in Romans 12, 4 to 5, that we're members of one another and members of one body. Our individuality is not meant to lead us to this rugged independence nor survival of the fittest where we're fighting against one another. Our individuality is given to us in order that our gifts and individual functions would be used to serve one another. That's why there's individuality. That's why there's diversity. So that we would have a multiplicity of roles and functions and gifts to serve one another. Because you're members of one body, you have a vested interest in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you remember the words of Jesus in John 13, 30, 34 and 35 on the night of his betrayal? He's speaking to his disciples and he says, a new commandment I give to you. 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now think about it. When Jesus says, as I have loved you, Jesus took such a vested interest in our needs, in your needs, in mine, in his disciples, that he was willing to give up everything to make provision for our sin. So when he saw our needs through sin, he didn't just go, man, I hope they figure that out. He said, their needs are my needs. I am so vested in them that I will give everything I have to see those needs met. He took on the curse of death. He suffered the penalty due to sin so that our needs could be met. Jesus is saying, that's how I've loved you. And then what does he say? Now go do the same for each other. Love one another as, just as, just like I've loved you. Jesus is calling us to nothing less than a cruciform love for one another. You know what cruciform means? Cross formed. Your love should look like the cross. That's the standard bearer of love. Now that's not convenient. It's not cheap. It's not easy. And Jesus says it's non-negotiable. It's not up for debate. You hear what he said? A new commandment I give you. Jesus didn't go, a new suggestion, I give you. A new, if you get around to it, I give you. He said, a new command. Love one another. How are we to love one another? As Christ has loved us. That's cruciform love. This kind of love and service to the body of Christ is commanded, not suggested. And not only is Paul calling us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need, do you notice he also said, he said contribute to the needs of the saints, and he also said seek to show hospitality. He's calling us to a love of outsiders. That's what he means by hospitality. Hospitality is a Greek word. You're getting your Greek lesson in for today, guys. Philozenia is the Greek word there. Translated literally, it means love of stranger. It's the opposite. Have you ever heard the word xenophobia? You know what that means? Fear of strangers. Paul says, he doesn't say contribute to the needs of the saints and run away from outsiders. <laughs> he says, contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show love to stranger. That's what hospitality means, to love strangers. And he says, seek to show it. Take initiative. Be proactive. Again, he's not saying, look, if, you, if there's really no other option, seek to show hospitality. He's saying, do this. It's active. It's something you should be taking initiative. In other words, active, not passive. You know, in the New Testament times, they didn't have hotels and motels all along the sides of the highways. And the ones that they did have were really shady places. They weren't places you wanted to go. And what Paul was saying is, look, guys... There's a missional opportunity here. As strangers are traveling and coming into cities, there are going to be people that take them into their homes. That's what a good society would do. And Paul's saying, we should be on the front lines to go, are you new here? Come stay with us. Why? For the purpose of mission. 
for the purpose of mission. There's a missional opportunity here. We can extend hospitality to outsiders and show them by our lives and by our love what Christ has done. We have an opportunity to put the gospel on display. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes of the House Key, says it like this. Radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. And she goes on in her book to say, let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, front yard, community gym, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. If you've been at Seven Mile Row for five minutes, you've heard neighbors into family, right? Because that's the point, she says, building the church and living like family, the family of God. Do you know Rosaria's story? She didn't grow up in the church. She wasn't always like this. In fact, she was an English and women's study professor at Syracuse University, and she was in a committed lesbian relationship. And through the kindness and hospitality, love of stranger, of a believing family, and a simple invitation to dinner. That's where it started. Her conversion story in real time started with, would you like to come to dinner? And God used that invitation. So disarming. She was an ultra liberal. He was an ultra conservative. They should have nothing in common. And he said, why don't you come to dinner at our house? Come break bread with us and let's talk. And it was through that simple invitation that the Lord used it to bring her to faith and repentance in Christ. Friends, your table, your workplace, your coffee shop, your neighborhood, your little league teams, your world is not simply a space for you to live for your own purposes. God has given it to you to show hospitality to outsiders. When we say, and we say it often, that our hope as a church is that we'd be a place, a people where neighbors become family, it's not a tagline. It doesn't just look good on a website. We say it often because it captures the heart of this verse and others like it to say, God has placed us here in this time, in this space for a reason. To meet the needs of others and to seek to show hospitality. Now, what does it mean to do that? Now, what does that have to do with living under pressure? It's simply this. Did you know that one of the most profound ways to find healing and alleviation from the pain of affliction is through an others-centered kind of love? See, when you take the focus off of yourself, that's others-centered, right? There's self-centered and there's others-centered. When you take the focus off of yourself and you start to seek to serve others and to love others, a powerful thing begins. It's not just good because it, 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 it serves the mercy. It's actually good for you. A powerful thing to be, begins to happen. Because sometimes when you're serving others and you're seeing their needs, you know what you find? You see that your suffering, your affliction, your current trial isn't so bad compared to the needs of others. And that perspective can often be healing in and of itself. Sometimes serving others gives us a break from the constant processing of our own needs. And just that break is radically healing. Just, just the moment where your mind isn't thinking about your problems all the time 
gives you some space. And serving others can be a means for that. Sometimes in serving others, you know what happens? Your own needs become apparent. And as you're serving someone else, meeting their need, they see a need in your life and go, well, you know what? I can actually meet that need in your life. And when that happens, that's the body of Christ functioning beautifully. Beautifully. This is supposed to be the norm of Christian community. That we live humbly and vulnerably so that people can see our neediness and, and seek to meet those needs. See, no one has it all together. No one. We know that's true, so stop pretending like you do. I don't have it all together. No one does. And it's supposed to be normal for brothers and sisters in Christ to extend loving help to each other. It's supposed to be normal that we are looking to outsiders to, for, for invitations into the spaces and places and facets of our life. That's supposed to be normal. That's why she says it's radically ordinary. These aren't supposed to be um, uh, extraordinary things. It's supposed to be ordinary, normal life. How do we live life under pressure? Paul says, hopeful endurance through dependent prayer. And second, proactive generosity to those in need. Finally, our last verse, verse 14. We need a countercultural grace towards our enemies. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now this is one of those statements that if we were writing the Bible, we would have written it like this. Curse those who persecute you. Curse and do not bless. They're a bunch of jerks. But thanks be to God, that's not what it says. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. Paul says to bless, that means speak well of, to ask, God, would you bless them like you've blessed me? It means to extend graceful words to our enemies that edify them and affirm them, rather than extending words that tear down and condemn them. This is straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you've heard it said, this is Jesus, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. See, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' textbook on how to live. And it includes living under persecution. And what does Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for them. Paul says, bless and do not curse. Now, some of you here know and understand that following Jesus means you'll be hated because of your beliefs. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And you've come to accept the reality. And you know this world is not your home. And so you prepare for the worst. And when it comes to culture and those who say that you're on the wrong side of history, you're like ready for battle. You know, you know who you are. You almost like the conflict. You're ready for battle. You're ready to go toe to toe. In fact, the fact that you're in opposition is like a badge of honor for you. You have courage, I'll grant you that, but you lack compassion. Now on the other side, there's some of you here that just wishes everybody could just get along. The idea of conflict makes you cringe. You're willing to love your enemies, but you'd rather just be besties. Right? What we believe is really not so different, right? You'd rather not stand out for your beliefs. 
You'd rather those things just be private and personal because isn't faith, isn't that what it is? Private and personal, meant to just be lived inside our homes. You want to minimize conflict and just focus on the common ground. Because after all, doesn't love mean unconditional affirmation? See, the problem with this approach is you have compassion, but you lack courage. We've got to be people of both courage and compassion. Love does not mean full affirmation. There are things Christians have to say, I cannot affirm that. Love doesn't mean you can't challenge assumptions and winsomely articulate counter-arguments. This is where the New Testament threads the needle between these two extremes. Like a militant, um, conflict-ready person and a cowardly, compromised person. The New Testament says neither one of those are the way. We've got to come to grips Friends, that following Jesus means we will be in opposition to the culture. It's just a reality. It inevitably will lead to conflict in families, in the marketplace, in schools, in community, in every sector of your life. And we are called to be firm and prepared to defend our faith. And at the same time, we're called to do so with gentleness and respect. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always what? Being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. We are to be known by our actions and our reactions. Your response is your responsibility. So if someone comes at you hot and heavy, doesn't mean you get to go guns a-blazing. Your response is still your responsibility. Now, loving your enemies, blessing them and not cursing them cannot be done in your own strength. It's only by the grace of God as we are experiencing the grace of God in our lives. It's not enough to do nothing. So when someone is um, persecuting you, it's not enough just to walk away. We're called to a certain kind of action, not simply holding our tongue, but to bless and pray for them. John Stott, again, is helpful here. He says, it's impossible to pray for someone without loving them. Impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy till we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. He's saying, listen. You can't wait till you feel something for them because it may not come. What you feel, that hatred, that animosity needs to be turned into blessing and prayer. This is exactly what Jesus did as he was being persecuted and tormented on the cross. You remember that? As he was being crucified, what did Jesus do for his enemies? He prayed for them. Luke 23, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And here's Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friends, I'm not saying it's easy, but this is the call on our life. This is the way of Jesus. So yes, pray for justice to be done. Pray for God's will to be done. But also 
Bless those who persecute you. Pray that God would extend the same kind of mercy and grace that you've received towards them. Because if you had not received it, you would be just like them. The only difference between you and someone persecuting you is that you've been shown mercy and grace. Seven Mile, this is the transformed life. It's a life that can stand firm against the pressures and afflictions of life. When the gospel makes its way into your soul, you can rejoice in hope because you know that God is working out all things for your good and that your suffering has an expiration date. In your affliction, don't wallow, don't be prideful, but go to the Lord with prayer so you can experience his never-ending supply of grace. Let's be a people who look to seek to meet needs not only in the body of Christ, but also to the outsiders so that our neighbors become family. And when you are persecuted, when the opposition comes, let's be winsome, let's be courageous, but let's also be loving and pray and bless those who persecute us. Let's pray.